Well, good evening, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. We're still missing quite a few of our folks, but I'll go ahead and get you started here. Welcome back. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. We still have a few more days where we can enjoy the Christmas season. So I hope everybody had an awesome time. It sounds like you all did. Y'all are fresh and ready to go. New Year. That's good. Just a couple of reminders. Um, we do have BOW this, this Sunday. So um, just remember that we'll be together at the 11 o'clock mass, as usual, for baptism of the Lord. And then reminder again about sponsor meeting. This will be our first February meeting, so your sponsor should come with you for that meeting. And the schedule changed for this month, January 29th. I'm asking you to try to get here at 6.30 p.m. because we're going to be starting the movie Unplanned at 6.30 p.m., okay? This is pro-life month. Um, for the church, well, really for the nation, right? So this is um, this is the month that Roe versus Wade got passed, and so we have March for Life in January, and so we utilize this month really to celebrate the gift of life. And so we're going to have um, in the narthex, we're going to have a big crib set up so that you can bring baby clothes, diapers. We have a Gabriel project here that supports women in crisis pregnancy, and so we we have a big room upstairs that has lots of supplies for them if they need diapers, clothes. Strollers, car seats, we help them with all those things. So um, if you want to help us with that, we'd really appreciate it. You can drop those off at the office or in the baby crib when um, January 15th hits. Um, what else? Anything else I have to remind you of, team? Okay. Is Sunday the baptism of the Lord? Yes, yes, ma'am. <laughs> baptism of the Lord. Okay, well, tonight we are um, blessed to have. Um, Dr. Stuart Squires with us tonight. Um, he's going to be covering church history. He's going to do as much as he can. Um, tonight we've got 2,000 years. Usually I have two nights um, for church history, and we still may be able to do that. I have to look at the schedule as it relates to that, but we're going to do as much as we can in terms of the early church um, tonight. And um, Dr. Squires um, works at University of St. Thomas. He's an associate professor of theology as well as the associate director of the Center for Faith and Culture. Um, I've never heard of Brescia. Is it Bres Brescia? Brescia. Somebody had that pronunciation yeah. right. So that he, you worked at um, at Brescia University, which is also a, a Catholic university, as associate professor and department chair, and DePaul University. He was educated at Catholic University of America, where he got his PhD. He did his master's at University of Chicago, and he did his undergrad at DePaul University. Um, so I'm I'm really excited to hear um, his presentation on the early church. So please help me welcome. Uh, Dr. Stuart Squires. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for that introduction and thanks for having me here. Um, uh, Mary did say that probably the most important thing, which is that I came into the church, like many of you, in uh, 2011. Officially, I came into the church. So I've been flirting with Catholicism for uh, that one out, didn't it? Yep, there we go. Uh oh. Is this a battery issue? Do I need to switch? Come on in and out. Is there a trick? You want me to switch? You might, you might do better with the mm. handheld. You hate the handheld. I do. Well, give it a shot. Okay. Maybe move it up farther. Move it up? Maybe okay. move it up a little further. Yeah. And um, we'll yeah. Give it a try. Yeah, let's give it a try. Sometimes it's because you move around a lot. I oh. not get it because I move around a lot too. Okay. Um, so I came into the church in 2011. 
and uh, in Chicago. And uh, for several years after that, when I was still living in Chicago, uh, I volunteered for the RCA program. We call them uh, table leaders um, in Chicago. And uh, loved it, one of my favorite things to do. And since then, and right up until now, I uh, continue to give RCA talks and Theology on Tap talks. And it's, it's one of my favorite things to do, honestly, because when I would teach undergraduates, I now get to teach graduate students, but you know, they take classes because they require to, you know, take two theology courses. Uh, and so a lot of times they don't want to be in my course or in any theology course. Uh, and so to be here with you this evening uh, is really exciting to me because nobody's forcing you to be here. Um, on that note, I know some of you have already decided you want to come into the church. Others of you are still discerning whether God is calling you to do that. He is. <laughs> um, but I just want to, no matter what happens at Easter, whether you come in or not, I want to, I want to just give you kudos for your courage for being here. Um, it may not feel like it, but it really is. We live in a culture that certainly doesn't respect the answers that you're receiving from the Catholic Church. And, and even more importantly, I would say, you're not, the culture we live in doesn't respect the questions that you're asking. Our culture says you should ask questions like, how do I get faith? How do I make a lot of money? How do I get promoted to that next level of the job? How do I get uh, rich? How do I have as many sexual partners as I possibly can? The culture that we live in says these are the questions that you're asking, you should be asking. But the very fact that you're here tonight tells me that you're asking an entirely different set of questions. Is there a God? If there is a God, what does he want from me? What does it mean to be a human person? What is the good life? What is the moral life? What's the relationship between the good life and the moral life? How do I be a good person? Entirely different set of questions than what our culture gets. So, uh, congratulations and kudos to you for just being here and asking those questions. And, uh, uh, and I hope, and I know that you'll find that the answer that you're getting from the Catholic Church uh, uh, have a profundity to them. One of the things that I, the many things that I uh, fell in love with the Catholic Church um, is, is the deep and rich intellectual and social tradition that we have. Right. 2,000 years old, and it's the deepest as deep can be. Uh, we live in a culture that says, you know, the newest thing is always the best. Uh, whereas the Catholic Church says, you know what, some people from the 5th century, or the 13th century, or even the 19th century have things to say to us, and we can ground ourselves in that which is, uh, uh, that has a, a longevity, a duration to them, as opposed to the newest trend or the newest fact. Um, so, I put on your table a couple of things. First of all, this is the handout we're going to go through tonight. I didn't know who would be sitting at the tables. If you don't have any, there's a pair of people on my these tables. So, there's some Raise your hand if you don't have one of these. I've got a couple of people over here that need some. There's some other handouts. Um, so, this is what we're going to be reviewing this evening. And then another thing. Uh, that I provided for you again. Some, it, it, I've got some more if you don't uh, have enough. This is just a little brochure of what we do at the, the Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas. 
We do a lot of things. I encourage you to follow us on social media. Uh, this, this past semester, we had a symposium on racism. There was a, there was a, 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 a document that the US bishops wrote on, on racism. And we had uh, a bishop from uh, uh, Louisiana come who was part of writing that document. So we do um, symposia. Um, I'm launching a podcast by the end of the month. I've recorded 12 episodes about um, Catholic filmmakers and Catholic street evangelists and uh, Catholic theologians and all kinds of things. It's called um, Catholicism and Culture. So you can look for that in the coming month. Uh, the main thing that I'm in charge of is our master's program and certificate program, which we're going to be launching online next fall. We already have uh, on campus. And it's different from any other master's degree in theology in that it, um, it's not intended to turn you into academic theologians. Uh, it's, it's, it says that God is calling you to some vocation, and we want to ground you in uh, Catholic intellectual and social traditions so that you can be a better teacher or politician or business leader or whatever it is that God is calling you to be. So that's the end of my commercial. Now we're going to get to the good stuff. Um, so I was asked to talk about church history. I am, a, I am a historical theologian. My PhD is in the early church. I just published a book a couple months ago on the early church. So to me, the task of talking about 500 years of the church in two hours is, it, there's too much, too much good stuff to talk about. Um, so, how do I do this well? Uh, what we're going to do here is we're going to talk about some main themes that were happening in the early church. We're gonna, I'm going to have you guys read out loud, if I get this other mic to work, uh, little sections, some from the Bible, and then other from church fathers uh, and some other authors. And it's up front and back, and these are just some of the main themes that were happening in the early church. When we say the early church, um, generally what we mean We've got the apostolic era, that is the era of the apostles, and then just after that, uh, usually the end of the first or the beginning of the second century, we have the era of the church fathers. Scholars love to debate when this starts and when it ends, but usually we can say the first 500 years. So let's just quickly go through the themes, the bullet points, so we can get a, a sense of where we're going with this, and then we'll come back to the beginning of the, uh, the handout and we'll dig deeply into it. So the first one is the Great Commission, spreading the gospel. Do Christians need to follow the Jewish law? Institutionalization of the church under the bishop, martyrdom, prayer, back of the page, all religions become legal, monasticism, the ecumenical councils, and then finally, I can't do anything without talking about my guy, St. Augustine of Hippo. Uh, when I came into the church, that's the name that I took, Got a medal on, you can't see it, so Augustine, and he's the object of my, my study. I spend my, my academic career studying him, so I always have to quote Augustine. So that's the, the overview of what I want to do over the next hour and a half, two hours, and, and, and we'll have some time. And, and along the way, actually, if you want to stop and, and ask a question, I encourage you to do that. Uh, I, I don't want this just to be me talking, I want this to be a, a dialogue. That's what we're all about in the Center for Faith and Culture. It's all about dialogue. So on that note, is this microphone? No. I'm going to ask a volunteer to read uh, the, verse, the first um, bullet point, the Great Commission. Uh, so the quotation is the beginning, and at the end of all of these different quotations, you have uh, where the quotation comes from. So the first quotation comes from the book of Matthew. You can see this is the chapter 28. This is the very end. 
very end of the gospel. So this is one of the last things that Jesus says to his followers. So can I get a brave volunteer to, to raise your hand? I'll give you the mic, and uh, and you can just read that for us. I'll make it an easy for you. Front row. I like What's your name, please? Christina. Christina, thank you. Then Jesus approached and said to them, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. Thank you very much, Christina. All right, so a couple of things to, to point out here. So first of all, it's spreading the gospel. Anybody, have you, guys, you know what the word gospel means? We, it, it's a tricky word because there are different words that are kind of related. There's the gospel, the gospels, plural, and then the synoptic gospels. Anybody know what the gospel is? Spreading the word. Good news. It literally means coming from a Greek word, euangelion, the good news. Okay, well that doesn't help us out that much. What is the good news? Anybody know what the good news is? The good news is kind of an umbrella, catch-all term for the Jesus event. Everything in Jesus, his birth, his, his life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection. That whole thing we just kind of lump under this umbrella term of the gospel. So he, Jesus is telling his disciples, his followers, to go out and uh, to make disciples, right? To preach and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and what did I embolden there? It says, of all nations. This is an important point that I think we in the 21st century often miss. And this is an issue oftentimes when you read the Bible. This, of course, was written thousands of years ago. And when we read something... Um, we might misinterpret it based on our assumptions as 21st century Americans. So when we see that word, of all nations, that phrase, we might be tempted to fall into the trap of thinking of sort of modern nation states, right? Like the United States of America is a nation defined by geographic boundaries and a set of laws and cultural norms and these sorts of things. But anywhere in the Bible you see the term nation, that, that has nothing to do with geographic area or uh, uh, laws or anything like that. The nations, and this goes back to the, the Old Testament, um, <clears throat> a nation is anyone who has 12 or more sons. Anyone who has 12 or more sons. This is why we call them the Israelites, because Israel, which is the nickname of Jacob, had 12 sons. We don't call them the Abrahamites, even though Abraham was the first Jew, because Abraham doesn't have 12 sons. Right? So, a nation is anyone who has 12 or more sons. When a Jew says the nation, and of course, remember Jesus was a Jew, he wasn't a Christian. Uh, the nation means uh, anyone who's not a Jew. Right? So this, this is what the word the Gentile, the word Gentile means. Anybody who's not a Jew. The people of the nations. So what this is saying to, uh, to us, first of all, I think we can lose, I think, the meaning of what Jesus is saying here is, He's not just saying, go out to different geographic spaces and, and spread the good news. He's saying, I'm a Jew, you're all Jews, my followers. I want you to spread the gospel, but I don't want you to spread it, spread it just to other Jews. I want you to spread it to all the people, the Gentiles, all the different races. 
To you and me, that may not seem like a big deal. But this is one of the things that gets Jesus killed, right? That, that he was willing to associate with a variety of different peoples. Uh, talk to women who we love and relate to, that gets him, him in trouble. Uh, and in particular, talking to non-Jews. The Pharisees in particular, a group of Jews, really didn't like him for uh, a lot of things, but in particular for associating with uh, non-Jews. So this doesn't seem like a big deal to you and me, but for Jesus to say, I want you to spread this good news to people who aren't Jews, is, uh, gets him in trouble, it gets his followers in trouble, and uh, it radically changes history because the 21st century would look very different if Jesus simply said, go to other Jews and just spread the news. There would be no Christianity. It would be a subset of Judaism. So this is very important that when and, 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 and Judaism, of course, they, they take converts. Um, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Tiffany Haddish. You guys know Tiffany Haddish? I've got a big crush on Tiffany Haddish. She just she just um, <laughs> she just converted to Judaism a couple like last month, I think. Right. So Judaism accepts converts, but Judaism, even to this day, and certainly in Jesus' time, they don't go out and, and make a conscious effort of. of, of proselytizing the way Jesus tells his followers to do. So, again, they not sound like a big deal to you and me, but this is uh, radically changes history when Jesus says, go to every group, not just other Jews. Questions at this point? Alright, let's move on to the second one. Volunteer, please. Uh, this is called the Council of Jerusalem, and it happened around the year 50. 
5-0. So if Jesus died probably in the early 30s, um, this, this isn't much longer after that, right? Just 10, 15 years or so. And this council was called, by the way, this was written before any text in the New Testament was written, right? Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians was the first text written, probably around, that's in the New Testament, probably around year 52. So anything and anything that ends up in the New Testament wasn't even written yet. So they have this controversy, and they've got to figure out the answer to it. Well, they can't turn to the New Testament because there literally is no New Testament at this point. So what do they do? Have a council. They get together, Council of Jerusalem. And it's led by, you, would, you might think it's led by Peter, but it actually wasn't led by Peter. It was led by James. And the, the first theological fight in the church wasn't about Jesus. You know, is Jesus God? Is he man? We'll get to that later, 100 years later. But what we see here is the first fight has to do with, okay, wait a minute. In our first bullet point, Jesus said, go, uh, uh, spread the news to other nations, to Gentiles, to non-Jews. And they did that, and they were successful. But now we've got to ask the other question. Okay, now we've got these Gentile followers of Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. His followers were Jews. Does that mean these other um, new people, these Gentiles who want to be followers of Jesus, do they have to follow the Jewish law? Why is this an important question? Why is this the first question that they were really fighting over? The Jewish law, there are, there are actually 613 Jewish laws. We know about the Ten Commandments are the best known, right? Anybody know the first Ten Commandments? The first of the Ten Commandments, the most important one? You shall have no God before me, right? Uh, and when you do worship some other God before God made him, uh, that's idolatry, right? And idolatry doesn't simply mean worshiping another god, another deity. Idolatry theologically means anything that's at the center of your life that's not God. So that could be spouse, your kids, your job, money, all those things that I talked about earlier that our culture tells you that you need to uh, uh, seek for. Now, again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with money. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with money. But when money becomes the center of your life, that's idolatry, and you've broken the first of the Ten Commandments. But there are more than Ten Commandments. There are 613 commandments. And of course, to this day, Jews follow the, 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 their law, the Jewish law. Uh, why is this important? Well, if, if you've read any of the Old Testament, the Jewish law is, in short, the thing, the avenue through which Jews have a relationship with God. Right? They've, they've been entered into this uh, covenant with God. I will be your God. You will be my people. God gives to uh, Abraham's followers, his, his Abraham's descendants, uh, this promised land. And uh, as a sign of this covenant, I will be your God. You will be my people. But then there's the flip side of that point. To be in this covenant, the sign of the covenant is Abraham and all of his followers have to then follow the Jewish law. And the first thing that we see is uh, circumcision. Right? Abraham and everyone in his household, whether they're related to him or not, are told to be circumcised. 
This is the sign of the covenant, right? The covenant is permanent, it is everlasting, it lasts until today. Circumcision is permanent. You can't reverse that. So the sign of the covenant, the circumcision, the permanence of that, points to the permanence of the covenant with God. This is just one of, again, 613 laws. You probably know some of the other laws. Dietary restrictions. Jews can't eat certain things, like shellfish, for example. So by the time we get to here in the first century, and Jesus was a Jew, all his followers were Jews, and yet now Jesus is having all these uh, followers who are not Jews in. The question becomes, do they, these Gentile followers of Jesus, need to follow these 613 commandments, the avenue through which the Jews have a relationship with God? And we see here the answer is no. Let's go back and just reread the molded part again. It is the decision of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and by the way, this is uh, in double quotation. This is a letter that James wrote after the council, and he sends it out throughout the Mediterranean world to the communities. So this is, this is a letter being written. It is the decision of the Holy Spirit and, uh, and of us not to place on any burden beyond these necessities, right? You don't need to follow the 613 commandments, except here's a couple of things you got to do. Abstain from meat, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from meats, strangled animals, and from unlawful marriage. If you keep free of these, you will be doing what is right. So, 613 commandments down to, it's not just well, do whatever you want, but there are a couple of things you got to do. you got to follow these rules. Again, this may not seem like a big deal to you and me, but this is just as important as what we saw in the first bullet point. If the Council of Jerusalem had gone the other way and said, yeah, sorry, you've got to be a follower of Jesus. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you have to follow all 613 commandments. Again, there would be no Christianity today. This would be a, a subsect sect of Judaism. Because these two first two points, Jesus saying, go and spread the gospel, and Gentiles don't need to follow the Jewish law, are the uh, mechanisms that allow Christianity to spread throughout the entire world. Without these two initial points, again, it would be nothing today. Questions? Please. Uh, there's no mention in here of the Ten Commandments. Correct. How does that fit into the bigger picture? Yeah, so it's a good question. So, I mean, this is the Bible does explicitly talk about this, but then over the development of the, the Christian intellectual tradition, it becomes... Does that mean we can ignore all of them? So, for example, you know, honor thy father and mother. Do we get to ignore that first one that we talked about? Um, uh, you shall have no God before me. And the answer that we see over the, the development of the tradition is there's a distinction that's made between different types of, of laws. Uh, so the moral laws, like honor your, your mother, um, uh, uh, don't covet your neighbor's possessions, and all the other moral uh, commandments, we still have to follow those. Um, but the other laws, like again, circumcision or uh, the dietary restrictions, you don't need to follow those. Thank you for thank you for asking that. I should have probably said that already. Good question. Other good questions, please. How would okay? I'm going to ask my question. I'm going to explain why I'm asking my sure. question. Sure. Good. How would one? 
help convey why it's important still to follow things like the Ten Commandments, even with this is kind of a faith versus works thing. Even with like Jesus is coming, and even though like we need Jesus for salvation, and the reason why I ask this is today I had someone random at work asking about a Bible, my Bible on my desk, and I was like, yeah. "Yep," and they started telling me that it was idolatry to believe in the Ten Commandments mm. or like to believe in different things. Wow. I felt really uncomfortable because I didn't sure. know really how to respond. So I said, "We'll do a spreadsheet." So, um, but they were telling me that like we aren't, we can't save ourselves through our works, right. and I was like, I agree, and they're like, works will not save you, you need a faith, I was like, I agree, yeah. and I was like, but I still think you need works, because if you just believe that Jesus is God, you're not really being obedient, like, but I couldn't really get into it, because I'm sure. like, I feel so uncomfortable, sure. and so many boundaries are being crossed at work. Well, I, I mentioned earlier that I, I, I just published a 300-page book on this yeah. question yeah. of the grace works question. So um, the church has uh, quite a lot to say about that, but I, I want to stick with your first part of your question, which is how do we sort of um, know or convince people that we should follow the moral laws? St. Paul even talks about this. He says, look, yes, there are these written out 613 rules that the Jews have, but Gentiles have the law too, not written out in commandments, uh, the way Moses received them on the, um, the, the tablets. But, but Paul says that the law was written in our hearts, right? You don't need your mother or Moses or anybody else to tell you, thou shalt not murder. You know that already. doesn't matter what culture you're in. Right? There are very few things that we can talk about. Anthropologists will say transcend time and, and geography and cultures. But this is one of them, right? You don't murder people. You don't need the Jewish law to tell you that. You know that because as Paul says, the law is written on our hearts. We're like a computer come pre-programmed. So the short answer is, how do we know that we need to, to do these moral things? Is because we're not a blank slate. We're not a tabula rasa. That the, the law has been written on our hearts. Okay. That's the short answer. Okay. For the long answer, spend $40 on my book. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yes. I like it. I like it. Speaking of your book, what is the exact title? Oh, I'm just joking. You don't need that. <laughs> I, don't, I get like five cents royalty, so I'm not getting it. We really like reading. Okay, it's it's called. I do like this title. Are you ready for this title? It's called the Pelagian Controversy. Colon. You gotta have a colon in academic books. An introduction to the enemies of grace and the conspiracy of lost souls. <laughs> Two years <laughs> so it's called the Pelagian. Okay. Thank you. All right, um, let's keep moving on. Institutionalization of the church under the bishop. So if you read the Gospels, you know that the first uh, 50 to 75 years or so, um, you know, you don't have the sort of institutional structures that we have today, right? There is no Pope in Rome. Uh, Peter becomes the first bishop, he dies in Rome. But the idea that the papacy sort of develops over hundreds of years, um, you know, there, there are no, there are no uh, church buildings. There's no churches, there's no halls like this. For the first 300 years, uh, we'll talk more about this, Christianity was a persecuted, illegal religion. There were no churches. There were no real institutional structures. And in the begin very beginning, that's okay, because 
the community so small. And they didn't need to ask these questions about how do we need to organize, organize ourselves because they thought Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And this is an interesting thing that you see in the New Testament from the beginning, as I mentioned, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians written around the year 52, till some of the later texts that were written about 50 years later, you see a shift in the community's thinking of they thought Jesus was coming immediately back in their lifetime. Now we're at the year 100. The first generation is dying off. Wait a minute. Now what do we do? We can't go ask Peter and James these questions. They're dead. How do we organize ourselves? What do we do? Maybe Jesus isn't coming back. So now at the end of the first and the beginning of the second century, it starts to have to, have to deal with these questions, especially as the community spreads throughout the Mediterranean world. They're not all hanging out in Jerusalem. They're all over the place. How do you organize yourselves? Institutional questions start to bubble to the surface. I'm going to volunteer to read that third bullet point for us. Get somebody back on this side. Leave back here. Okay. Thank you. Go ahead. Now it is right that you should in every way glorify Jesus Christ who is glorified us. That being perfectly united in obedient submission to the ship and presbytery, you may be sacrificed in all other respects. Hence it is right for you to be in harmony with the thought of God, and so you are. For you, Reverend Presbytery, which is worthy of God, is tuned to the bishop as strings to obey. And thus, the concord and harmonious love, Jesus Christ is Son. Thank you very much. You can see there, this is, we're moving outside the Bible, past the Bible. This is from a man named Ignatius of Antioch. And we're actually going to get two quotations from him. This is, he dies, you can see, around the year 117. So we're moving into the second century. He was the bishop of Antioch. And as I mentioned already, in the early church for the first 300 years, it was a persecuted, illegal religion. And what the Romans would do is they wouldn't just go after everybody. They would do, uh, uh, you know, kind of what uh, governments often do, is they think, well, we just sort of decapitate the highest level and the, the community will fall apart. So they would, they would arrest usually bishops or, or someone uh, uh, of importance in the community and then, and then execute them. So what they did with Ignatius is they, they arrested him in Antioch and they took him overland uh, in, in by sea to Rome and they ended up killing him uh, in, uh, the, um, in the Colosseum. So we'll see that quote here in a minute. As he's going, as he's on his journey from Antioch to Rome, he writes letters to a variety of communities. Some of these communities send people, they know he's coming by, and, and they go and they visit him, uh, and he sends these letters back. So you can see this is from a letter to the Ephesians, just like uh, uh, Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians, a community in Ephesus. This guy Ignatius writes to the same community as he's arrested, and he's He's doing a lot of things in these letters. They're, they're really beautiful letters. They're short. Um, there's about eight of them, and you can find them online for free. Most, most of the stuff in the early church you can find online for free, and I encourage you to read it. And so he writes these really beautiful letters. And, you can, and here, what he's doing is saying, look, 
Uh, just reread the, uh, the emboldened part. For your reverend presbytery, which is worthy of God, is too sufficient as strings to a lyre. Lyre is a string instrument like a guitar or a harp. So he's saying, uh, presbyter is a funny word. We, today we just call them priests, right? So he's saying, you priests need to be in tune with the bishop. You need to be in harmony with the bishop. You need to listen to the bishop. You need to do what the bishop says. So this is where we, we see the beginning of the institutional structures, uh, which of course we have today. We have, we have you know, our bishop here, uh, bishop, Archbishop Bernardo. Uh, um, and so this idea of, of bishops and deacons and lectors and, and everybody sort of in the institutional church is under the direction of the bishop. Now why does he need to say that? Well, why does your mother, when you're a kid, have to say to you, don't eat cookies before dinner. You'll spoil your appetite. Why does she have to tell you that? Because that's exactly what you're doing. You're eating cookies before dinner and spoiling your appetite. Why is Ignatius having to say, follow the bishop? Because as I mentioned a moment ago, there's no, no plan fell out of the sky that said, this is how you, the Catholic Church, are going to organize yourselves. They had, they had to figure it out. This is the, one of the fun things about studying the early church. It's kind of like the Wild West, and things they're fighting over things. Do we have to follow the Jewish law? Do we not have to follow the Jewish law? Paul and Peter really got into it over this, by the way. And it's really fun to see how this sort of, I hate this word, or, organically comes together through fighting and, and arguing with each other. And here you, you see Ignatius making this argument. You've got to follow the bishop. The bishop is the head of the church in the local area. Why does he have to say that? Because people were ignoring the bishop. You can actually see in that letter from the uh, first letter to the Thessalonians that Paul wrote uh, at the very end of it. He actually he says, again, this is only about 15 years after Jesus, he says, uh, some of you in Thessalonica are ignoring your leaders. You're not respecting your leaders. So right from here, you know, 15 years after Jesus, people are already disrespecting their, their church leaders, and that sort of runs up till today as well. So you see Paul scolding you for it, and now you see uh, Ignatius saying, follow the bishop, the bishop is the leader of the church. And of course, this then continues to develop over hundreds of years and we have sort of institutional structures. And we, we don't think about this very often. We just think, oh yeah, there's a bishop and then there's a pope and the priest. And they're, they're just there. They're a fact of Catholic life. But again, when you study the early church, this is the fun part. You see that it wasn't preordained. People like Ignatius had to argue for it uh, because there were people arguing against it. Questions? Here's another quote from Ignatius of Antioch. This is on martyrdom. This is often called, the first 300 years is often called the Age of the Martyrs. Because as I already said, it's the persecuted illegal religion. There's an early church father named Tertullian who famously said, the seed, sorry, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Why was the Roman authority uh, trying to kill Christians, because they thought, well, if you kill them off, especially the leaders, it'll dissipate, it'll, it'll, it'll stop, it'll just be a, a passing fad. But Tertullian says, no, 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 people are attracted to this. They're attracted, and, and aren't we all attracted to people who stand up for their convictions to the point of death? I am convicted in this, and I'm going to stand for it. Whether you end up believing what they believe, I think we're all attracted to 
people who are willing to give their lives for something greater. And that's what we see in the martyrs. The martyrs are the people who are willing to die for their faith, and the Romans were wrong. Christianity continued to uh, expand precisely because Tertullian was right. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Volunteer to read this one for us, please, Mark. What's your name, please? John. So we're still dealing with Ignatius here. This is a different letter. Notice this is the letter to the Romans. I told you he's being taken to Rome. So he's writing this letter on a head. He's sending it ahead to the community in Rome, the Christian community in Rome. They're going to see him, and they're going to be there in the Colosseum watching him being torn apart by the animals in the Colosseum. They know what's coming, he knows what's coming, and he's writing this letter on ahead to them. Since God has answered my prayer, see you godly people, Romans, I have gone on to ask for more. I mean, it as a prisoner for Christ, Jesus, that I hope to greet you. I am God's wheat, and I am being brought by the teeth of wild beasts to make a pure loaf for Christ. I absolutely love, thank you very much, I absolutely love that quotation. You've got so many elements going on there, right? So he's going to be literally ground uh, under the teeth of the animals as they kill him. And you clearly see here a Eucharistic image, which again, I think we often lose in the 21st century, because if you and I want bread, we just go down to HEB and buy a loaf of bread for 99 cents and we don't think about it. But people, anybody, anybody bake your own bread in here? You guys, you guys ground your own meat first? Right, so even if you make your own bread, you probably go to some store and buy flour and buy meat already ground down. But you probably know, again, we often lose this in the 21st century, if you want to make wheat, the first thing you got to do is grind it down, like mortar and pestle. There, there are no cuisinarts. arts. You can't plug it into a machine into the wall and do it. You got to do it physically. It's very hard. Making bread takes a lot of manual labor. And so to grind down the wheat, or whatever type of grain you're using, turn it into a powder, and then you can add the, the, the leaven and the water and whatever else you add into it. Then you bake the loaf. And again, it's a Eucharistic image, so what is it, what do you do when you, uh, I mean, t we lose this in the 21st century. When you and I receive Eucharist, it's a little cracker, right? It's a little host, and then you just pop it in your mouth. But what is a loaf of bread, right? Again, HEV, it's already pre-cut for you. But that's not, none of that existed for them. They'd have a loaf of bread, and they would break it, and they would hand it to the person next to them. You grind down the wheat, you make it into a loaf of bread, you break the bread, and you give it to the people you're eating with. He's playing on all those images. He's talking about himself being ground down in, by the teeth of the animals of the wild beast to make a pure loaf for Christ. His body is going to be turned, obviously not physically, but what he's saying is, when you, the Roman community, are in the Colosseum watching me die, I want you to Take it in visually, experientially, and use it as spiritual food to grow in your faith. So I am becoming, in a sense, a Eucharistic loaf of bread for your spiritual food. How profoundly beautiful is that? This is just one example of many, many, many martyrs from the early church. <coughs> Questions? I just had 
Please, I'm yeah. just amazed that the religion flourished because as soon as someone was appointed pope, you know, they were that, uh, that was almost a death sentence. So it's amazing to me that people would stand up and say, yes, I'll, I'll die with my faith over and over and over again. Yeah, this is one of the great questions that, that historians ask. How is it and why is it that Christianity was so successful? It was persecuted. It largely wasn't until the late 4th century. There was no rich people. <clears throat> you see at the end of the 4th century, the rich Roman aristocrats, now that it's, it's the official religion of the Roman Empire, they start piling on and all these rich people, because, because the emperor, he's now Christian, and all the aristocrats around him, oh, we got to jump on that bandwagon. Um, but not in the early church, not in the first 300 years. So what is it? You know, and sociologists make claims, and economists make claims, and all kinds of people make claims, but I think, I think Tertullian um, would make the theological claim, which I think is, is the, the best answer, which is people are drawn to the, to the beauty of, of what Ignatius is talking about here, of, of giving your life up uh, for something greater than yourself. The next one is uh, prayer, the longest of our quotations here. And I don't mean here individual prayer, we're talking about communal prayer, specifically what today we call the Mass. In the early church it wasn't called a Mass, that's sort of a later medieval term. Mass comes from a Latin, you know at the end of Mass today the priest says something like, uh, go, the Mass is ended, go to love and serve the Lord, that's like the Latin In Latin, the phrase is uh, pita, misa est, M-I-S-S-A. Pita, go, misa est, literally means it is finished. So that word misa then over time becomes mass. But again, that's a sort of later medieval term that comes about. In the early church, we call them um, uh, agape meals. Love, love, literally means a love meal. That people would get together and have a meal, break that bread, uh, and, and, and have a meal together. This goes back to the early church. You can see St. Paul sort of railing against the Corinthians for their abuse of this agape meal. So we're talking about the communal prayer, not individual prayer. This comes from a man you can see uh, named Justin Martyr. He was a martyr. This is the mid-2nd century. And he's writing this. It's called the First Apology to the Emperor Antonius Pius. Apology, not in the sense that we use the term today, but in the sense of it's a defense or an argument for Christianity. So Justin is writing to the emperor because by this point there's all kinds of rumors that are being spread. And one of them that's being spread is that Christians are cannibals. Why would people think Christians are cannibals? Because the Eucharist, right? If you don't know about the Eucharist and, and, uh, and Jesus' sacrifice and all that, and you just get this weird thing on these Christians are eating this body and this blood. You can understand where this idea comes from. And so then Christians are, they're not just, you know, um, this weird group of people doing this, this, this crazy stuff, but, but they're dangerous because they're uh, stealing people's babies and eating them. So Justin, in the mid-2nd century, is writing to this emperor. Again, you can find this online for free and read the whole thing. That's not that long. Uh, and, he's, and he's saying, look, we're normal people. We're not cannibals. We just do what everybody else is doing. So let me tell you what we do. And so he goes through and he just describes uh, how they pray communally. As we read this, I want you to pay attention. 
What are the similarities and what are the differences between what we see here in the second century on how Christians communally prayed and how we pray today in the Mass? Volunteer to read this one for us, please. Somebody have heard from today, please. Your voice. What's your name, please? Molly. Molly, thank you, Molly. I think she said it was the mute button. It's the green light on. Yeah. You have to speak really close to it. And we afterwards continually remind each other of these things. And the wealthy among us help the needy. And we always keep together. And for all things wherewith we are supplied, we bless the Maker of all through His Son Jesus Christ and through the Holy Ghost. And that on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read, as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the prayer, or sorry, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray, as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And the president, in like manner, offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people ascend, saying, Amen. And there is a distribution to each, and a participation of that over which thanks has been given, and to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. And they who are well-to-do and willing give what each thinks fit, and what is collected is deposited with the president, who... Suckers. Suckers, the orphans and widows, and those who, through sickness or any other cause, are in want, and those who are in bonds, and the strangers sojourning among us, and in a word takes care of all who are in need. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. For he was crucified on the day before that of Saturn, Saturday. And on the day after that of Saturn, which is the day of the sun, having appeared to his apostles and disciples, he taught them these things which we have submitted to you also for your consideration. Thank you very much. See, we're not weird. We're not eating babies. We're just doing normal stuff. We're reading. We're talking. What did you guys notice? My question was, what are the similarities, what are the differences you see with how we worship today? I don't think we have a president. Uh, okay, president. Um, yeah, that's, that's just kind of a translation word. So presiding priest. So oftentimes you'll see multiple priests um, uh, celebrating mass. You have the main guys called the celebrants. And then uh, the con-celebrants is the technical term that, that the other guy that kind of does a little stuff, but he's not doing too much. So presider, president, celebrants, um, it, it's just a matter of terminology. This is basically saying the, the main priest doing all of this is who the president is. Yep? Um, so it looks like something that's similar is like, it says at the top of the back, and on the day called Saturday, all the open cities or countries gathered together in one place. 
and the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read. So that's the same, but what's perhaps different, it says, as long as time permits. So maybe it was less structured back then. Well, that always makes me laugh, and I'm glad you pointed that out. She's talking about the fourth line. It says, the readings, the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read, right? Old Testament and New Testament. And then what does it say? As long as time permits. That makes me laugh, because if you go to Catholic Mass on a Sunday, it's like, if a Mass is longer than an hour and five minutes, people are like, come on, Father, wrap it up. i got to go watch the Texans lose, right? We get so impatient. Especially, uh, you know, our Protestant brothers and sisters, they'll, they'll preach for like 45 minutes or an hour. If our priest humbly goes more than like 15 minutes, they're like, <laughs> So yeah, they do it as long as time permits. They've got longer attention span than we do. What other similarities and differences do you guys see? There's still a homily. Again, these technical terms that we use today, maybe you don't see them so much, but, but so you don't see the word homily, but that's exactly right. It says, uh, uh, when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. So what is the, it tells us right there, what is the purpose of a homily? Instruct, right? What does the church teach? What does the Bible mean? And number two, uh, and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. So in other words, how do we then apply that to our lives? So that's what, at least homily, to this day, is uh, supposed to be about. I, I, I won't try not to get worked up, but it's my pet peeve when like, a priest gets up there and starts telling jokes, or, you know, let me tell you what my uncle said to me when I was five, or this crazy, wacky thing that happened to me this week, and I just want to be like, Father, that's not what this is about. It's not about jokes. It's about instructing what is the, what is the uh, uh, teaching of the Bible and morally exhorting us to imitate Christ and his followers. There's this uh, 20th century Protestant theologian I love. He boils it down. He says, when you preach, you should preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Right? What does the church teach? And then what's going on in our lives today in the 21st century? And how do we apply that? How do we, how do we live our lives? shouldn't just be about telling jokes or crazy things that happened to you this week. A couple more. What else do we see here? As is that, Kristen, I love in the presentation of the gifts. Okay, good. What, uh, what, what are the words that you see there for us? Well, the bread and the wine and the water. You see are brought. Are brought. Yeah, good. So, um, and they don't have to, right? They could just be sitting up there on the altar and you could just grab them. What is the significance of the bringing of the bread and the wine? It's from the people. It's from the people. Yeah, I think this is, this is something that's often lost on us today. Again, another one of these things. Um, my brother-in-law, he's not Catholic, and he's British. If you know anything about England, they have state-sponsored churches, right? So their churches don't have to sort of raise money or, or fundraise or anything like that. So he comes to America, and he sees all these Americans, you know, bringing money up to the altar, and he gets really upset because he thinks we're all just a bunch of capitalists that are trying to make money off of each other. And I've explained to him, no, 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 no. The bread, the wine, the money, this is collected by the community. The fruit of our work, right, we go out through the work, throughout the, the week, our labor, and then we give it back to God. We bring it up to the altar as an, as, so that our bread, wine, our money can be sanctified through the work on the altar, and it becomes our participation in the work 
on the altar. So we're not just sitting there while the priest is doing all his hard work and we're, you know, re uh, checking the scores to see what the Texans are doing. We are participating in the altar by the gifts that are brought up by the sacristans. One more thing. What do we see here, similar or different? It's basically similar though, right? Overall, this is the same stuff. Terms might be a little different. There's really fundamentally nothing different. In other words, we've been doing this stuff for thousands of years. This is one of the things I love about the church. This is not a, a newfangled thing. We just make it up, you know, Vatican II. If you guys invite me back, I'll talk about Vatican II. There's a great amen. I'm sorry? There's a great amen. Oh, great amen, right. Uh, where is that? So we, uh, the people assist. That's, that's the important part. Why do we say amen? It's not just... Um, uh, okay, the priest is you know, keeping up on his our feet so we're not sleeping. We are assenting. When we say amen, we're saying, okay, everything that you just said, Father, there in your prayer, I am giving my body, my soul, my mind, I am fully into this. Everything that you said, I am assenting to that, I am participating in that. I'm physically, I'm sitting out in the pews, but I am, I am up there on the altar with you with my gifts, bread and wine and money, and my, my verbal descent. I am up there on the altar. So, the overall point, again, um, it's not that much different from what we do today. All religions become legal. As I've already mentioned, for the first 300 years, Christianity was a persecuted, illegal religion. Then we have this radical thing that happens I haven't listened here. You'll usually hear it called the Edict of Milan of 313. Actually, wasn't called that until a long time later, but that's okay. But you usually hear it called. Volunteer to read this one for us, please. becomes the emperor of the West. At this point, you have in, in Roman history, you have something called the Tetrarchy. Basically, you have four leaders of the Roman Empire. And at this point, you've got the, the two main are called the Augusta. The Augustus of the West and the Augustus of the East. The Augustus of the West is Constantine. He later on becomes the sole emperor by killing Martinus. But at this point, 313, Lycanus is the Augustus of the Constantine, in the previous year, in 312, has this sort of radical uh, vision. And uh, he sees this vision in the sky and says, uh, uh, put this symbol, and it's a symbol uh, um, the Cairo. Yeah, the Cairo. It's, 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 do we have any in here? Probably not. It's an early church symbol. You've all seen it. It looks like an X and then a P in the middle. And it's the first two Greek letters, uh, Christos. 
high and the row in this room. Uh, and they're supposed to interpose on top of each other. And this becomes a symbol that Constantine sees in the sky and is told to put it on the shields of his soldiers and that they will go in battle the next day and conquer and win. And they do. He, he defeats his, uh, his enemy and he becomes the, the, the Augustus of the West. Constantine himself has this very complicated relationship with religion we don't need to get into. One important point we can talk about is he's not baptized until his deathbed, which was common back then, in the year 337. So basically, he spends his entire time as an emperor, uh, and he's not a baptized Christian, although he's often called the first Christian emperor, but that's not actually true. Licinius has zero relationship with Christianity, and in fact, he ends up later on, about five, ten years later, um, uh, instigates a, a, a per, another persecution of Christians. But here in 313, they come together, and what do they do? Well, first of all, notice it says they're making Christianity legal, right? And others. Notice that in the part that I have in bold, Christian, Christians and others. In other words, this Edict of Milan, contrary to popular belief, was not making Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. That doesn't happen until the year 380, under Theodosius I. What this is saying is all religions are legal, including Judaism, for example. Now, Constantine and his mother, uh, Helena, do in fact give a lot of money to Christianity. Again, it's a very complicated relationship. The question is, why did they do this? We might be tempted to think of this as some sort of proto-Jeffersonian understanding of separation in church and state. But in fact, just this little selection that we read together doesn't say that. It doesn't say, let's have a separation between church and state. You do whatever you want on Sunday, you keep it out of the political world. It's not what it says. What does this paragraph tell us about why Lycanius and Constantine are making this radical new rule to make all religions legal. What is their point? What do they want to do? Okay, good. In the middle there, um, everything that is pertaining to the public welfare and security, we're going to make all religions legal. What they're saying, and this comes out in the entire document, again, it's only two pages if you read it. They're saying, look, you can worship whatever God you want, but what we want you to do is pray to whatever God that is for the security of us as emperors and for the security of the Roman Empire. Notice, again, the word that is used there is reverence of the divinity. It doesn't say reverence of God. It doesn't say reverence of Jesus. It doesn't say the Father or the Holy Trinity. It doesn't say any of that. It gives this very uh, broad, amorphous term, the divinity, whatever that means to you. So this is not a proto-Jeffersonian separation of church and state. This is not a sort of uh, postmodern, hey, all religions are the same, it doesn't really matter. This is saying, this is taking religion seriously, and it is saying religion needs to be in the public and political sphere, specifically pray for the good of the empire. Notice, though, it does mention Christians specifically. It doesn't say, it says, and Christians and others, which is a lot of different religions. But it does mention Christianity specifically. So we're seeing that strange tension of Constantine on the one hand favoring Christianity, he'll come to do that, but 
But there's not any legal preference here at all for Christianity. This is, uh, again, one of the most important radical things that happens that allows Christianity to flourish. Because now you've got, not only is Christianity legal, but you do have financial support of the state. And as I already mentioned, it becomes the uh, official religion of the Roman Empire in year 380. Um, and it's kind of off to the race. As I mentioned earlier, the rich aristocrats who want to be in good with the, uh, the emperor, they start becoming Christians. And this is when Christianity really starts to, to flourish. Questions about that? More of a comment than anything. And if I remember correctly, as all of this was going on with the allowance of the different religions, the only stipulation from the Romans was that this, everything was done in a peaceful manner and didn't upset anything going on in the empire. Not to cause the ruckus. Because this was during the time of the Pax Romani, after all. Correct, and then, that's actually in the edict, again, not in the particular section that I've selected out, but it's for the sort of for the peace and tranquility of the empire. Um, yeah, so that's that's their whole, that's their goal, that's what they're intending to do. Of course, uh, intention and what actually is happening isn't always. But I do have one question. Please. The one thing that's bugged me uh, from my readings, it's been brought up several times that the Romans couldn't tell the difference between the Jews and the Christians. And do you have any insight on that? Uh, by this point, yeah, the fourth century they can. But in that beginning period, especially when we get back to that, that uh, quotation, uh, the apology from uh, Justin Martyr uh, to the Emperor Antonius Pius, and that point in the sec second century, Christianity, um, uh, there is a sort of confusion, and rightly so. In fact, scholars don't call, we often call the early church, like Paul in the early church, or Peter in the church. Scholars don't call it that. Um, because at that point, it's not Christianity. We call it the, uh, the Jesus movement. It's a movement under the umbrella of Judaism. You've got Pharisees and Sadducees and the Essenes and the Herodians and all these different Jewish groups. And now you've just got this new group that scholars call the Jesus movement. Why do we not yet call it um, uh, Christianity? Well, a lot of reasons. But the most important reason is that Jesus' followers, even after Jesus is no longer here, they're good Jews, and they still do what good Jews do, which is they go to the temple and they make sacrifices. And you can see this throughout the Acts of the Apostles and the other letters. Um, uh, until the year 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed the second temple, so we're talking again early, early 30s when Jesus was alive, until the year 70, during that, notice what is that, 40 years or so, Jesus' followers, Peter, Paul, all of them, they go to the temple and they continue to make the temple sacrifice, which is the heart of the Jewish religion at that point. Following the law, making sacrifices. So we can't call it Christianity at that point. It's a movement within Judaism. So it is rightly misunderstood by the Romans because it isn't even clear among the Christians. What is the difference between um, a Christian and a Jew? Well, we've already got for a couple of those. Go back to our first two points. First of all, Christians end up being a proselytizing religion, whereas Jews don't. And number two, uh, followers of Jews don't have to follow the Jewish law. So as I said, the Christian religion for the first 300 years is a persecuted, illegal religion. Then it becomes 
uh, initially legalized in the official religion, and I, I think I've said twice now, the aristocrats, the rich people in Rome, they jump on board, but they're kind of, as you would say, uh, nominal Christians, right? They don't really care about it. They're not willing to die like Ignatius was. They just want to be good with the emperor because they got a lot of stuff because they're rich, and they don't want to lose it because the emperor is going to be a Christian. Fine, we'll be Christians too. What does that do to the Christian community? It, it forces the Christians to ask the same question that they asked in the beginning and we continue to ask today, and that is, what does it mean to be a Christian? How do we live our Christian life? One answer we got earlier was, don't have to follow the Jewish law. Now we have to, have to ask that question again in the new context of uh, legality and then the, the favored status of Christianity by the empire. And this is where you get the rise of monasticism. Who wants to read that one for us? He went into church, and just then it happened that the gospel was being read. And he heard the Lord say to the rich man, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. It was as if by God's design he held the saints in his recollection, and as if the passage were read on his account. Immediately Antony went out from the Lord's house and gave to the townspeople the possessions he had from his forebears. Thank you very much. So this is from a, a very important man, Athanasius of Alexandria. It is important uh, for multiple reasons. We'll talk about the Council of Nicaea in a minute. Um, but he wrote this text, which is a really beautiful text. It's called The Life of Antony. It's kind of a hagiography, is technically what it's called. We call it today a biography. About this man named Antony. Antony of the desert. Antony of Egypt. Antony lived in, uh, in Egypt. And um, as this section tells us, he's a young man. And he walks into a church. And he, and he kind of used one of these lukewarm Christians. Uh, and he hears the gospel being read. This is from the Gospel of Matthew. If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor. And he thinks that God is speaking directly to him through this priest or lecture who's reading. So he literally turns around, he walks out the door, and he gives away all his possessions. He, had, he inherited some possessions from his parents who had died, saved a little money for his sister so she wouldn't become destitute. And long story short, he runs out into the desert, the Egyptian desert, and for 40 years lives in, uh, secluded in, a, in an abandoned castle, uh, fighting a spiritual warfare. So what you have here, really about the same time that Christianity becomes legalized, is you have, you have the exterior persecution, that is the Romans persecuting the Christians. Well, now the Romans aren't persecuting the Christians anymore. So now what we have is what we call an interior persecution. That the Christians are, so to speak, persecuting themselves. In other words, um, uh, the technical term is self-flagellation. Either physically, right, later in the medieval period, people sort of whip themselves. Uh, or people like Anthony, who doesn't whip himself, but he goes out, uh, doesn't eat much, 
uh, gives away all of his possessions, all his money, doesn't get married, doesn't have kids, doesn't have sex, doesn't go up the professional ladder, aban literally abandons society and runs off to the desert to fight the demons. And, and you see the demons pop up. Uh, today we call them issues. Right? I've got issues. <laughs> uh, you know, in the early years we called them demons. You know, call them whatever you want. These things that, 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 that we struggle with in our interior lives. So if the Romans aren't going to persecute us anymore, we're going to persecute ourselves. So you have the, the rise of the monastic or the ascetic movement. And it happens all throughout the Roman world. The, the sort of center of it is here in Egypt, uh, outside of Alexandria. This becomes the hotbed of, of, uh, of Christian asceticism or monasticism. Initially, it's uh, people like Alexander running off to cave. Uh, sorry, not Alexander. Uh, Anthony. Running off the cage, living by themselves, you know, not bathing, not washing, not uh, brushing their teeth, not eating very much, living by themselves. But slowly, you have uh, um, communities start to develop, and you know, then we get in the medieval period, and you have, uh, you know, right up to this day, you have Benedictine monasteries and uh, Trappist monasteries. I used to live in Kentucky, um, about two hours from where Thomas Merton lived. Kentucky and the Trappist Monastery. I went there for a three-day silent retreat. Um, uh, if you get the opportunity either there or anywhere else, I always encourage you to do that. Um, so this idea of, of, of monasticism hasn't gone away. It's become more institutionalized, more um, communal, rather than these individuals running off to the desert. But it's still here. A lot of Catholics uh, don't even know about it, though, because, again, people aren't talking about it on YouTube or, or on television or in, in pop songs. Um, this is sort of uh, uh, not very well known, but the aesthetic movement that monasticism still exists, it really starts to take off here in, in the early fourth century. Questions? I was curious about the, the self-flagellation. What was their thinking of why they should persecute themselves or beat themselves with yeah, and I should say this is not, you know, the common thing. This is not like everybody's doing it. But it's the idea of, of um, yoking the passions, yoking the desires, right? So what do you do if you're an athlete, right? You need to train your body. You lift weights, you do cardio, you don't eat Cheetos and McDonald's, right? You've got to eat good, healthy stuff. You have to form your body so that when you go out into the field, your body can do what you want it to do. If you want to dunk a basketball, you can't be 400 pounds because you eat McDonald's every day. Right? I want to dunk a basketball, so I have to form my body to do what I want it to do. It's the same thing in the spiritual life. Uh, our, we, have to, we have to yoke our bodies, uh, in particular the passions. Uh, if we allow our passions to uh, run roughshod over us, to use Pauline language, he says the flesh lusts against the spirit, right? Well, if the flesh lusts against the spirit, you got to get the flesh uh, yoked. You got to harness it. You got to you got to make it do what you want it to do, what the spirit wants to do, not let the, let, let it run roughshod. So it's about uh, uh, um, controlling the bodily impulses so that you can focus your mind on. Couple more points, and then we'll have a discussion. Um, formation of doctrine, the ecumenical council. Ecumenical means uh, universal, so the universal council. So, 
The, there, there have been 21 ecumenical councils. The most recent one was Vatican II in 1962 to 1965. But there have been a lot more councils. I've already mentioned the Council of Jerusalem. That's not considered an ecumenical council, a universal council. The universal councils are the ones, they're universal in the sense that, uh, at least in theory, they deal with the entire church, not just a particular issue that it, a, a local church is dealing with. So bishops come from all over, again, at least in theory, come from all over the Christian world and participate. The first one, the first ecumenical council, is here in the year 325 in Nicaea. All councils are named after where they happen. Uh, Nicaea is in today what we would call Turkey. And uh, notice the first four ecumenical councils are all within about 125 years of each other. And these councils, uh, look how many years after Jesus they are. They're not, you know, just a couple of years afterwards. It's, it's the first one's in 325. Why does it take them so long to start really hammering out what do we Christians believe about X, Y, and Z? And the short answer is because they were persecuted illegal underground church. You can't really get together very easily from all over the Roman Christian world and, and, and fight about and argue about uh, what, the, what the Christians believe if you're worried that you're going to have your head chopped up. So it's now in the year 325 where Christians can start to say, come, sort of come out of the woodwork and, um, and start to have these councils and these fights. So the first one was in 325. In short, it, it, the question that was asked is, uh, what is the relationship between the first and the second persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son? Um, just that language, father and son, seems to be hierarchical. The father is superior to the son, right? Fathers don't listen to their sons, right? Because fathers gave birth to this, right? They, they produced the sons. They're, they're the ones, they're the fathers, and the sons are below. Right? My father lives in Colorado. He's getting older. He's still shoveling the snow. He's in the 70s. He's like my dad. He's a snowblower. He doesn't listen to me, even though I'm right. Because I'm his son. I'm, I'm below him. Right? He, he raised me. He changed my diet. So why would fathers listen to sons? So does that language, the father and the son, indicate a hierarchy in the Trinity? The short answer is no. That the three persons of the Trinity are, um, are not hierarchical. That they are, uh, we see here the technical term, the father and the son are consubstantial. This is a word that we use in the creed every week, consubstantial with the Father. Uh, I don't want to go into the, you know, bore you with the sort of theological background, but this is not a biblical term. And what this is saying, in short, it comes from a, a Greek term, homoousios, which literally means of the same essence or the same substance. That the Father and the Son are of the same essence or the same substance as opposed to other Christians at the time who were saying, well, no, there's a hierarchy. They're not the same. The Father and the Son are not the same. They're similar, but they're not the same. Council of Nicaea, in the, in the end, says, no, 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 no. The Father and the Son are of the same substance, because if they aren't, well, when that Son becomes incarnate of the person Jesus Christ and dies on the cross for the humanity, then Jesus really isn't God, and if Jesus isn't really God, 
and he can't save us from our sins. So Nicaea says, yes, in fact, the Father and the Son are the same. A couple of years later, in 381, you have the Council of Constantinople, which, what's it called today? Constantinople. Talks more about the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is the, when we say the creed every week, it's actually the creed of the Council of Constantinople, the second ecumenical council. Uh, people often call it the Nicene Creed, but that is not correct. Nicaea has its own creed, and again, you can find that online, but these are different creeds. 431, Ephesus, Mary is the mother of God. And then 451, the Council of Chalcedon uh, addresses the question of Jesus' humanity. Is Jesus human? Is he fully human? Is he half human? Is he kind of human? And the answer that Chalcedon tells us is that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. So these are just the first four councils. Again, I said there are 21 ecumenical councils, and they are the ones that sort of sort of codify for us what is the Christianity teaches. The Bible is great, good for a lot of things, but it's not a systematic, organized text that says, here's what we believe. It's kind of this uh, unorganized um, collection of letters and poems and history and laws, uh, and you've got to sift through it to make sense of it. So this is another theme that begins in the uh, early church that, again, continues till today. Someday there will be, you know, Vatican III or CC1 or something like that. Finally, my guy, St. Augustine, the doctor of grace. I forgot the exact number. There's like 33, I think, uh, uh, doctors of the church. Four or five of them are women. They all have different, they like uh, Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor. Ambrose is the uh, doctor of virginity. Augustine is the doctor of grace, the teacher of grace. He is one of the most important, if not the most important, um, thinker outside the Bible, right? Non-biblical, non-canonical author in the history of the church. Um, anybody read Augustine's Confessions? Raise your hand if you went to school and had to read Augustine's uh, he wrote a lot of different books. His most well-known is his Confessions. It's often considered the second most important book in Christianity, not behind, obviously, the Bible. And I encourage you to read it. Uh, it's a good sort of um, Lenten reflection as you prepare. Ooh, that moves. Lenten reflection as you prepare to come into the church. I would recommend that you read his Confessions. It's often considered the first autobiography in Western civilization. It's about his conversion experience. So as you continue to discern your conversion, you should read the greatest conversion narrative in uh, Western civilization. It's about his struggle with, with, with uh, the fads of the day, right? He, uh, we're tempted by the fads of our day. He becomes a, uh, 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 tempted by the, the philosophy of his day called Manichaeanism. That didn't work for him. Uh, he became tempted by what we would today call uh, postmodern relativism, right? This idea of you can't really know truth. So he kind of bought into that trend for a while. Um, it's, as I said, it's sometimes called the uh, first autobiography in Western civilization, but I think Augustine would not actually be comfortable with that because to say it's an autobiography is to say it's a book about him. But Augustine would say it's not a book about him. 
It's a book about God operating in his life and using his life as a locus to talk about how God operates in our lives. It's, it's about the journey of the soul. His soul in particular, but it's, it's, it's often uh, uh, thought about as a model for the journey of all of our souls. So he tries, you know, to find truth in Manichaeanism, and that, that doesn't work. And he tries to find it in relativism, and that doesn't work. And he tries to find it in astrology, and that doesn't really work. And he tries to find it in sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Right? That doesn't work. Uh, and so he's like jumping around trying to find all of these different ways of finding truth until he finally settles uh, on his mother's Monica and her, her Catholicism. It's, and the reason why it's such an important text is because, again, it's not about Augustine. It's about the journey of the soul. God moving in his soul. The very first line of the Confessions, Augustine is quoting the Psalms, and he says, You are great, Lord, and greatly to be praised. So right from the first sentence of this text, Augustine is pointing us to the proper uh, subject of this book. It's about God and then how God works in Augustine's life. And he goes through these, um, these, uh, these things that I just mentioned. And then in his early 30s, right around the time that Jesus is crucified, he becomes a Christian, baptized, and then becomes a bishop. And as I said, he becomes one of the greatest thinkers in the history of Christianity. He writes a book on the Trinity. He writes a book called The City of God that becomes an important text for the relationship between the church and the state. He writes the Confessions. Um, I mentioned the, the question of, of works and faith. That's called the Pelagian controversy he gets involved in. Um, so he gets involved in all kinds of different um, controversies. He has a, several famous phrases. One of them, when he was in that sex, drugs, and rock and roll phase, his, his famous prayer to God is, Lord, grant me chastity and confidence, but not yet. <laughs> he loved sex, and he wanted to keep, he knew intellectually, eh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. He wasn't married. He had a, he had a son with his, his, his beloved, they were married though. Uh, he had a son. And uh, he knew intellectually that I should become a Christian, but he just was having too much fun. So he prayed to God, but not yet. One of his other famous phrases you can see right there on the bottom, and I'm going to go ahead and read it myself, because Augustine's my guide on being selfish. This comes from the very first paragraph of that book, Confessions, written around the year 400. This is really, this one sentence is the Christian life in summary, in one sentence. He's praying, again, this is a prayer. As Bishop Robert Baird called it, this is, Confessions is a prayer overheard. So he's praying to God, and he says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. One sentence we could spend an entire semester unpacking that. Let's just spend a few minutes. Three important sections of that sentence. You have made us for yourself. What is that telling us? That's telling us what is your life supposed to be about. It's not about what the capitalists tell you, make money. It's not about what Hollywood tells you, become famous. The purpose of your life is to become in a right order relationship with God. You have made us 
not for money, not for sex, not for power. You have made it for yourself. So the next time somebody at work asks you to get a Bible and asks you, what's the purpose of life? You can summarize it in one phrase. You have made us for yourself. But there's a problem. And what is that problem? Our heart is restless. The restless heart. A hungry heart. Right? Bruce Springsteen, everybody's got a hungry heart. The restless heart. We try to find happiness in a variety of different places. All those things that I mentioned earlier. I want to find which we call idols, right? I will be happy when I get married. I'll be happy when I get that promotion. I'll be happy when I get that pay raise. I'll be happy when I get married, when I have kids, when I have that beautiful wedding. I'll be happy when dot, 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 fill in the blank. This is the symptom of the restless hearts, or as the, the Buddhists would call it, the monkey mind. We're constantly jumping around to different things. Augustine was restless. He went to Manichaeism, astrology, sex, skepticism, all variety of different places, philosophy, trying to find happiness, trying to find truth, because we have restless hearts. Finally, the third point. Our hearts are restless when what? When they find rest in you. First of all, when, when does our heart finally find rest in God? And that's, that's, that's at the eschaton, that's the end. It's not in this life. So that's a hard pill for a lot of us to swallow. We will, we're always trying to find happiness. We won't find ultimate happiness in this life. It's not going to happen. A job's not going to make you happy. I had a friend who converted to Catholicism about a year ago. She was a pretty serious addict, recovering alcoholic and drug addict. And I had to tell her, I said, look, Catholicism has a profound response to the question of suffering. But it's not going to take your suffering away. It's not going to take your restlessness away. It will radically reorient your way of thinking about and relating to your suffering and your restlessness, that desire to find happiness, but it's not going to take it away. We will only ultimately find happiness when we are uh, uh, gazing at the beatific vision with God at the end. But we can find a, a bit of happiness when we find rest in God here in this life. So, uh, you know, happiness is not buying that $200 pair of boots or the new iPhone or the brand new car. Happiness, which we're all seeking, is when we find rest in God. I don't know if you guys saw in uh, about two, three years ago, in the New York Times, made national news. And actually, I think the woman started a podcast. She's a professor at Yale. And, this, and the news story was um, that her class enrolled the largest number of students uh, in the history of Yale, which is like 400 years old. And what was the class about? Happiness. So have, all you have here, you have all these really smart Yale undergraduate 18-year-olds, you know, working really hard because they're in the Ivy League and they got to prove themselves, right? I'll be happy when I get to the Ivy League. They're not happy. They're clearly not happy. Why? How do we know? Because they're taking this class on unhappiness. The teacher is coming at it from a psychological perspective. Augustine would say, well, that's nice. Nothing wrong with psychology. 
But he would say to all those Yale students, it's not ultimately going to make you happy. You have made it for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That is the Christian life in a city. Questions? He could have honestly said, been there, done that. Augustine himself? Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's what the entire first nine books of Augustine's Confession are about. It's about exploring all the ways that Augustine's restless heart tried to, to, to fill itself up. It didn't work. It didn't work. So I encourage you to read that book, especially maybe during Lent. It's a great text to read while you're in the process yourself converting to Catholicism. Other questions? Now, I'm done. We've got time, so we can do questions, we can do comments. How do you guys want to do it? What was that verse that you just said? A verse? Whatever you said. Is that a verse? Yeah, so, well, it's not from the Bible. It's from Augustine's Confessions. It's the very first paragraph of his. The book's about 300 pages long. Uh, so it's the very first, uh, uh, the end of the first paragraph. You. you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until the rest is in you. Other comments or questions, please? So what do, you guys, what do you guys make of this? I mean, we talked about the prayer, right? A lot of similarities between their prayer and ours. Some things you'll see are similar. Other, other things, uh, another similarity, they're asking the same question. What does it mean to be a Christian? How do I live the Christian life? Do I need to follow the Jewish law? First century. Uh, maybe we shouldn't be lukewarm and we need to run off to the deserts? Fourth century. We're asking similar questions now. What does it mean to be a Christian? Can I be gay in a Christian? Can I be in gay marriage and be a Christian? Can I believe other things in other religions and be a Christian? How do I be a Christian? Same old question, new context. Do you have your hand up? Yeah. Um, no, I was curious. Like, how many people like Augustine and others become like bishops or like church <laughs> That's a good question. Today, when you're a young man, if you're discerning the priesthood, you know, it's, it's usually a long process. You can't make a split decision. It's in conversation with uh, other people. You've got to go talk to the bishop, vocations director. Long process. takes years. Sometimes you've got to go, go and when you, that, when you decide to do it, then you've got to go through seminary. That's not at all what happened in the early church. They didn't have seminaries. All of the great figures in the early church, Augustine, Jerome, Ambrose, Cassian, Catholic, all of them were literally forcibly ordained. I mean, they were tackled, they were held down, and they were ordained against their will. Augustine was, or sometimes like Ambrose of Milan, who, who baptized Augustine, he was uh, declared bishop before he even been baptized. So in the course of a week, they had to baptize him and sort of move along to make him a bishop. Augustine wasn't immediately... Uh, uh, ordained as a bishop. He was ordained as a priest and then later became a bishop. They tackle him. They hold him down. They force him to be ordained. And he starts crying. Everybody else that just held him down thought he was crying because they made him a lowly priest and they didn't make him immediately a bishop. But that wasn't why he was crying. He was crying because he didn't want to be a uh, priest or a bishop. He didn't want either one of them. What? This is, a, this is a difference. Today we think of bishops and priests as a sort of exalted, honorable position. None of them in the early church, none of the early church fathers wanted it. 
John Cassian, one of the great monastic writers, has this great line. He says, basically, if you're walking down the street and you see either a bishop or a woman, turn around and run the other way. <laughs> He's writing as a monk to other monks. And what is his point? If you're a monk and you want to sustain that singular vision on God, and you don't want to be distracted by the flesh that we talked about earlier, <clears throat> avoid women, because they'll, they'll tempt you and seduce you, and avoid bishops, because what are they going to do? They're going to forcibly ordain you, and what do you got to do now? Now you got to be a bureaucrat, and you got to deal with all the bureaucratic nonsense of being a bishop. So if you got to deal with being a bishop, that means you're not praying. By the time we get to Augustine's period, the Roman emperors allowed the bishops to not only deal with uh, ecclesial court cases, but they can also be civil judges. So if you've got like a tax or a dispute with your neighbor, has nothing to do with Christianity, you can take it to Augustine when he's a bishop, and he will adjudicate that for you. So Augustine spends all day dealing with this bureaucratic nonsense, and it's only in the evening by candlelight that he's able to write these great texts. I don't know where he got the energy from. But I love this question. Totally different. They don't want to be bishops. They don't want to be priests because it distracts you from, from your prayer. Stuart, I love that you um, talked about so many of the different saints. I love all these saint names. So these are great things for you guys to kind of investigate. We've gotten a little bit of a touch of these things. Athanasius, um, Justin, Justin Martyr, yeah. um, Ignatius, um, of Antioch. I mean, you're such great men of the church that, you know, as you were thinking about your same name, your formation yeah. name, um, these are great introductories. A lot of great women uh, saints of the early church, too. We didn't have talk, time to talk about uh, Perpetua and Felicity. Perpetua was similar to Ignatius uh, of Antioch. Uh, uh, arrested, thrown in prison. She was nursing a baby at her breast. Her father comes to her and says, don't allow yourself to be killed. Right? You can get out of this. All you got to do is sort of forsake your Christianity. Do it for the sake of your child. And she doesn't. She is uh, she's martyred for her faith. And uh, the child is sort of taken by her family race. So we have a lot of Tatiana, this other great uh, uh, early church female saint. So there are a lot of great uh, women saints of the early church as well. Other questions? Please. I would assume that council did it always in, like, peacefully, like, in the last one. Is there at any point, do any of these, do people break off and say, I don't, like, in the last one, I don't see how these folks do that, they're fine? Great question. Yeah, let's, let's start with the first one there, the Council of Nicaea 325. So that says, that's arguing against a group called the Arians. The Arians are the ones that said that there's sort of a hierarchy and that the sun is not fully divine. Athanasius, the guy I mentioned earlier who wrote the, the, the biography of Anthony, he's actually best known. Uh, he was at uh, Nicaea as a deacon. He wasn't there as a bishop, but just a couple years later, uh, his bishop dies and he becomes a bishop. And over the next 40 years or so, he becomes the great defender of Nicaea. And why does he have to defend Nicaea? Because there are a lot of Arians who said, yeah, we don't care about the council. We, it didn't agree with us, so why should we abide by it? So Arianism didn't magically disappear. It continued on for more than 100 years, actually. So, the, so that's why one reason they had to call another council, the second one, the Council of Constantinople. So this is a great point, that when councils are called, 
Uh, and even though decisions are made, it doesn't match magically make things, okay, we're all going to hold hands and agree now. People are like, I don't care about the council. I'm, I'm not, not my council. Clearly it's wrong. Um, so Athanasius and others had to say, no, 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 you don't just ignore council. Uh, you have to abide by them. And this, and this is just one example. You have a lot of different, pretty much every council, frankly, that I can think of in this in the church, uh, when it wrestles with an issue, after the council makes its decisions, still have people saying, yeah, I don't care. Even Vatican II had people break away and say, yeah, that Vatican II thing, that's nonsense, and it's, 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 it's not legitimate in our eyes. So you have people breaking away from Catholicism in the 1970s. Great question. Great question. I love this. Other questions? I was curious about the great schism between the East, I mean, the, the church split in the East and West yeah. and the day. That yeah, that happened in 1054, so about 500 years after what we're dealing with. Um, the Great Schism, in short, it's a complicated issue. Um, the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Constantinople excommunicate each other. They're fighting over it. It's a really complicated issue. But the two main issues that it boils down are two things. First of all, by this point in the 11th century, you, you start to get the, the Bishop of Rome saying, I'm the head cheese here, right? Remember, Ignatius didn't say that. He doesn't say, listen to the bishop of Rome. He says, listen to the bishop, no matter which you know, diocese you're in. Uh, by the time you get to the 11th century, the, pope, the bishop of Rome is saying, hey, I'm the pope, and you guys all need to listen to me. And the bishops in the East said, uh, no, we don't. Um, you're a bishop, and you're legitimate in your diocese, but I'm the bishop of Constantinople. I don't need to listen to you. You're not, you're not, my, you're not my boss. You're not the head of the church. And then the second issue that they fought over is something called the Filioque controversy. Actually, it gets back to this thing we were talking about with the Council of Nicaea. Uh, uh, every, every, every time we say the creed every week, um, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. In Latin, and the Son is Filioque. Uh, so in the West, we say that the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. If you ever listen to um, the, uh, the Eastern Orthodox say the exact same creed, they don't say that. They don't say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. They say the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Very technical theological issue that we don't need to get into here. But in the end, I mean, I think one important point that this does draw out is theology matters, right? I teach my undergraduates, and they're like, oh, this is awful. It's so boring. It's irrelevant. And they say that because it's irrelevant to my life. Mm, no, it's not, right? We're, why, why, are, why, are, why are they fighting over um, the Israel-Palestine situation? It goes back to Abraham, right? Claim to this land is a theologically ordained claim on both sides. It's not a political issue. It's not, a, it's not natural resources. It's not oil. It's a theological claim. So we see here with the Great Schism the idea that theology does ultimately matter, even if it doesn't feel like it. Um, that's the short answer. Other questions, comments? What, let me ask you guys, what is this? I mean, you all have come from different points and different perspectives and different backgrounds, but the similar thing that you all are sharing is this discernment of am I being called into the church? Some of you have a deep background in church history. Others, this is all totally new to you. Put the two together. This church history with your 
discernment of your call to the Catholic Church? What, what's the intersection here for you now, personally? What does it do to your reflection, your discernment? Is it all just history that doesn't matter? Is it irrelevant to your discernment? Does it, does it shed some light on the way you think about this thing called Catholicism now? Please. I think it adds to the decision to believe in something, right? So, I, for me, faith isn't easy. It's not something that sure. easily happens, right? So, I need that foundation. I need to know where it started and how it can be in the present moment. And so, just knowing the history is Yeah, this is a, this is a good point. It, this is relevant for all the fights. Excuse me, that people have today about what 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 Benedict XVI called the canon of issues. I like that term. It's a, sometimes we call them hot button issues of today. You know, uh, uh, priestly celibacy, male priesthood, sexuality, marriage, all those, those hot button issues. Then the canon of issues. Why did the church teach these things? It didn't just drop out of nowhere. There's a history to them, and there's a logic to them. It's not just well, God said so, right? There's a logic to them, theology. There's a history to them. They come out of a particular historical moment for a reason. Uh, and so if we, we, people just often dismiss, oh, the Catholic Church says X, Y, and Z because it's stupid and patriarchal and stuck in the Middle Ages. No, no, no. There's a logic to it. There's a history to it. And if we study it, not only can we understand it, but it actually might start to convince us, oh, Maybe whatever we think in our postmodern society today is just kind of the newest intellectual trend. And if we take a scope of thousands of years of, of, of looking at the way people have thought about the human person or God or creation or whatever it is, maybe, maybe our postmodern society is actually the exception to the rule, and the rule itself makes a little bit more sense. So we've got to study the theology of it, and you've got to study the history of it. How do you do that? <laughs> Any final comments or questions? I don't know if you guys normally do this. I saw you didn't do it at the beginning, but can I ask somebody to, to lead us in a closing prayer? Or do you normally do that, or how does that work? Why don't you do that for us? Because I've talked enough tonight. <laughs> I've talked enough tonight. So would you like to lead us in prayer? This is going to be a little unorthodox, okay? But uh, this is something that's very personal that happened to me today. And uh, it's, a, it's a Facebook post, and it can kind of be a prayer. prayer. It is a rare day when you reconnect with a good friend from high school whom you haven't spoken to in many, many years. But it is a true blessing when you find out that you share so many beliefs, so many basic principles, and above all, a profound faith in God. Actually, in this day and age, I'd call it more of a miracle than just a rare day after all these years. I think God touches us all in different ways through the people that we, we meet, through strangers, through close friends, through family, through the liturgy of our church. And Lord, I would just ask you to continue to bless this group and to, uh, I thank you for the many blessings that, that you have given to all of us and that you use us to 
Thank you again for uh, inviting me here. Uh, I'm not sure where I'm going to be this year um, at the vigil. Uh, if you haven't been to a vigil, it's amazing. My favorite um, uh, 